0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce Robert Burleson, our communications manager.
1: Hello, everyone, and I would like to introduce Patrice Starks, who hails from Dallas, Texas. Patrice
0: cowboys. <laughs> yeah,
1: hey, bad. Patrice is a survivor of a plastic anemia. So first to get started, Patrice, we'd like to know a little bit about you, just what your life was like and what you were doing before you received your diagnosis. And as part of this, we do have to ask, uh, can you share your age at diagnosis and your age now? But just tell us a little bit about how things were going before you were diagnosed.
2: I was diagnosed in 2013. So doing the math, five years that makes me 47 when that happened. I am now, I will be 52 in May. And life was pretty normal for me. Um, I would get up every morning and do a couple miles walking, not running, uh, but walking. And I had taken a break from that morning ritual during the holidays because nobody wants to be working out during Thanksgiving and Christmas. At least that was my excuse. So that worked very well for Quite me. Quite all right. When I started back up in January, it, it just didn't feel right. I, I could have, I'd do a block and get really winded and it continued to get progressively worse until the end of February. And that's when the ball dropped for me. Okay. What happened? So it's interesting that you say that. Um, I was at home watching Robin Roberts' special on uh, 2020 about her struggle with uh, breast cancer and then AML. And while watching that, that, sh- that show, I felt the need to clear my throat. And when I did, nothing happened. So I went to the bathroom and I coughed really hard and I coughed up a blood clot. Oh, so, So that was my my wake-up call. So I went to the doctor the next day, and five days later, I was diagnosed with aplastic anemia. And it has been, you know, it's probably one of the scariest things that could happen to me to hear that that was a disease for which there is no cure. But at the same time, there was really nothing I could do but weather the storm and get through it. So I'm a woman of faith, and I had excellent medical care, family and friends, and uh, I went through it, made it through it.
1: Well, you did cover a little bit of my next question in a cogent way, uh, the sequence of events that happened, um, and the diagnosis came very quickly. And you mentioned some of this, I think. Just during this first phase, what challenges you faced pre-treatment?
2: Pre-treatment, you know, just not knowing what was going on, but just knowing my body, being able to, I had something to measure it against because I was so fatigued by the end of February, you know, I'm thinking, am I just out of, I can't be that out of shape. I, you know, I could whip out two miles in just a few minutes and then come back home, take a shower and get ready to go work nine hours a day. Mm-hmm. but I, again I was so lethargic it just seems like when I would get home and I'm not a napper I'd sit on the sofa sofa and fall asleep and I'd wake up when my sister would get home and we'd eat and I'd go back to sleep and that's just not me so that's how I knew something was going on
1: okay thanks and now can you talk a little bit about your treatment regimen you've been diagnosed there's a number of you know well-established uh, treatments. Um, just mm-hmm. can you talk about you know what they you know what you took and how often you Absolutely. went back for evaluations and and a little bit about right. the treatment team, medical treatment team you had.
2: Oh, they they are my family now. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the hematologist oncologist who took my case happens to be one of the leading specialists in the country treating aplastic anemia. So again, uh, there were all of these just wonderful things that just happened. And I don't think it just happened, but they were appointed unto me. So uh, I went through ATG the first time and uh, that regimen, uh, I had the horse ATG the first time. Correct. And they told me when I went in, I would be in the hospital for uh, six to eight weeks uh, to prepare myself to practically move in and become a resident of the hospital. Well, that's not cool, because I have things to do. (laughs) So um, we did the ATG, and they said generally three days after the last treatment is when you start to see cell growth. Well, the first day after my treatment, they started to see a difference in my bone marrow uh, counts. That's remarkable,
1: that's remarkable. That was
2: very remarkable. So that was uh, 2013 and in the middle of that treatment um i would go back for follow-ups and you know fluids and transfusions as i needed them um I found out that i had stage 4 thyroid cancer whoa so uh because i was back up on the good side with the with the blood counts uh we went the thyroid way took out the thyroid there were uh 42 cancerous uh lymph nodes in there and My surgeon was supposed to be in there just three hours. It turned into a six-hour operation, but they got everything, and that's behind me. So everything was good for about two years, and then Thanksgiving of 2016, I was shopping for Thanksgiving dinner, and my body just did something weird, and it was like, if you take another step, you're going to pass out. Mm -hmm. Well, I called my husband at the time, and I was like, hey, something's going on again. And I don't feel right. He's like, "Are you able to drive?" I said, "I'm going to make it home." And I called the doctor, and he had me to come in. And my numbers were terrible again. At my initial diagnosis, uh, you know, a healthy individual has 150,000 platelets. Well, my platelet count was 6,000. So
1: significant.
2: I could, yeah. So I could feel it going that way again. And from November 2016, we went back to do another round of ATG, and this time they did the rabbit, and we were not successful. So from November of 2016 to March of 2017, I was in the doctor's office every Friday because that was my day off, and I was getting some form of a blood product.
1: So you were getting transfusions?
2: And transfusions, something every week, mm-hmm. and, um, Finally, January um, 2017, the doctor, he just told me, he's like, look, we can't do this anymore. If we keep this up, you've got about 90 days to live. Wow. We've got to do a transplant. Yeah.
1: Well, that's uh, certainly, you know, we'd spoken to you a number of years ago, but this is an update um, that we're you know shocked to hear.
0: Was it- that scary for you to hear that you had to have a transplant?
2: Um, again, not really, because I am of the belief that, well, I have a lot of beliefs about it. Again, I was not afraid because there was nothing I could do to make myself better. And this is not to minimize any other type of cancer, but if it were breast cancer, I would have had the breast removed. Or if it was liver cancer, I would have had to do something to my liver, but there is nothing you can do when you have a bloodborne cancer. There's nothing to remove. You have no other alternatives, but to do what you have to do. So in 2013, we had um, typed my daughters to see if they would be a match and they were 50% match. And he was just, he said at that time, it just wasn't a good thing to do. But those same kids <laughs> were still a fifty percent match five years later, and because medicine has advanced so far, he said we're going to do it. So my youngest daughter, who at the time was twenty four, uh, gave me five million cells, and we did the transplant. And um, there's a you know my family has a, a crazy sense of humor because we all laugh about it now. I couldn't tell my brother about it. Who well I couldn't talk to him about it. You know six five former. Uh, security detail for President George Bush and Ann Richards when she was governor of Texas. And, you know, he's a big guy and he can take bullets for public figures. But when his little sister is dying with cancer or fighting cancer, he couldn't do anything but cry. So I couldn't talk to him. My sister works at the hospital in the pediatric unit where they always see little babies going through transplants. And unfortunately, all that she remembers is the ones who don't make it.
0: I couldn't talk to her
2: about it. So I, everybody has that one family member who's just out there. And this one family member to me said, I don't think you should do it. I said, you know, if we don't do it, we will either be planning my funeral in 90 days or we'll be celebrating in 90 days. I'm going in. I'm going to do it. I'll see you guys later. And so, we did
1: it. And you made up your and mind. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit <laughs> about me. the just the pretreatment and the process itself?
2: The pre-treatment was uh, just the preparation to get – my body ready for everything. And then from there, we uh, went through a lot of orientation and training and meeting people. And the hospital did a very good job of getting my family oriented and preparing them for what was going to happen. And aside from me being a coach, uh, I told them, look, get it together. I don't need any wimps around me, man (laughs) up. We gotta do this. (laughs) Now, uh,
1: let me ask you, uh, once the transplant happened, can you talk a little bit about your recovery, how you felt, or how long it took to feel close to normal?
2: Um, it took about—I was in the hospital for five weeks, and that whole stint was remarkable because I had great caregivers around me.
1: Okay, so you felt progressively better pretty quickly because, of course, there's can be side effects and unintended things. Uh, yeah.
0: Did you did right, you have a was. lot of
2: side effects? Um, other than, of course, you know the diva that I am, I lost all of my hair, and of course, um, that in it itself became um, that became a trademark. Though I couldn't wear wigs; they were too hot. Um, so I was just all natural. I was just out there and loved. It. I've always had long, beautiful, thick hair, and that just became a new life for me. So I was. I mean, it was a new me. So, so you the, embraced you embraced it. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Did I ever? I had a photo shoot done. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah, so um, it became part of my life, but it it probably, I never would have wanted that to happen to me. Nobody wants right. cancer. But the fact that I had that rare blood cancer has just truly changed who I was into an even better version going forward. You
1: wouldn't believe how often I hear other uh, patients who've uh, been through similar circumstances say that.
0: Can I can I ask a question about your caregivers? I have I have read that caregivers have a really important role in transplant patients' lives for stem cell transplants. Can you tell me a little bit about what your caregivers did for you?
2: Yeah, I have. Uh, I assembled my dream team and. Uh, assigned each of these <laughs> responsibilities. Can you tell? I, can you tell I'm a control freak? But um, my sister, who works there at the hospital, was there for me uh, from a clinical perspective. My best friend is an RN, so she wow. would come up just to make to look in my face. And then my daughter works at the hospital. So I had a lot of medical professionals around me. But aside from that, I had people from my church who would pay for cleaning people to come over and clean the house. Because when you come home from the hospital, it has to be sterile. It has to be clean. You don't have anything to fight any diseases. So um, I had people bringing me food and I, I am a foodie. I'm a great cook, but there were days that I just didn't want to eat, but I had enough food to feed me and my family. People here at my job, um, they did a gift card drive for my husband for those weeks that I wouldn't be at home and not able to cook. And they provided him with enough meal cards to feed him <laughs> way past the time that I got home. Well, so, uh, But the really, caregivers, fun. yeah. That's Sorry? a very
1: vibrant uh, support network you have, truly.
2: And I'm grateful for it because they are a great part of my quick recovery, and um, they were those people who they were there, and I could be truthful with them because by nature I'm a positive, a you know, just a, a really positive person. But on those days that I didn't feel great, I could just literally say, "God, guys, I don't feel well," and they yeah, yeah they understood. It. Well, that's great. So,
1: Uh, Moving on, um, you've uh, recovered, you've moved, gone back into normal life. Now, um, one other thing comes back into play here. Uh, You mentioned at the outset uh, Robin Roberts, and now subsequently Robin Roberts comes back into your situation. Can you tell us a little about that?
2: Yes, and it's the craziest thing because when you and I emailed about this podcast, you know, I'm I'm a Facebook girl, so I just went out on Facebook and I was like, you know, guys, I never, ever imagined five years ago when this happened that, you know, I went to a conference to learn everything about my disease and then they interviewed me afterwards and now they're starting a podcast series and I'm going to be a guest. And I was like, you just never know what your situations will grant you. And I said, the only thing that has not happened is I have not met Robin Roberts just to tell her thank you for being so transparent. Because as I saw what she went through in that special that night, it was like once I was diagnosed, I was like, okay, I saw what Robin went through. And I was like, I would just love to be able to tell her thank you. Well, the world of Facebook is a wonderful thing if you use it the right way. Mm-hmm. And a, friend of, a Facebook friend who graduated with my sister happens, happens to know someone who knows Robin very well. And as a result of that, I will be her guest on Good Morning America next Tuesday. Wow.
1: Isn't that something?
2: The tatty Cathy that I am and this A-positive girl that I am, you know, I will probably just go completely numb. If they ask me anything, I probably won't even know what my name is. Well, you've been <laughs> but, uh, very
1: cogent uh, with us, uh, certainly. I'd like to ask you also, um, how did you discover AMDSIF? And, of course, you did go to two of our conferences, I believe. It's been a while, but could you talk about those conferences and what it did for you, what you learned, who you met? uh, uh, Um,
2: What happened um, while I was in the hospital that first time, I just started Googling aplastic anemia because I wanted to learn everything that I could about the disease so that I would be able to speak intelligently about it because I didn't know anything about it. You know, you, you go to the hospital cause you coughed up a blood clot and they tell you you've got a disease for which there is no cure. Well, hold on a minute. So I wanted to know everything that I could. And when I saw that you guys, I saw your organization and the conference was coming up in April. And that was in March when I was still in the hospital. I went ahead and registered then. I didn't know who I would meet, but it was in Houston. And again, that's where my best friend lives. Who's the RN. Mm-hmm. So I called her. I was like, "Hey, I'm going to this, this, um, this conference, and it also covers caregivers. Would you like to go?" She's like, "Absolutely." And
1: she went with you. You so mentioned that.: She went:
2: Yes, yeah, she went with me, and we learned a great deal. And when I came, well, while I was there, I got information. I came back and told my doctor's office about the materials that you guys have, and I put the office manager in touch with your organization, and they now they still get literature from you uh, to educate a plastic anemia patients, So I see them in there all the time when I go and I just
1: kind of smile because that's us. Well, that's very rewarding to hear from me because I'm in part responsible for those materials and I'm glad they're getting out there. Um, And then why would you, as far as our conferences, why would you recommend them to newly diagnosed patients who are now where you were back then or even ones who are further along in treatment, similar to where you have been in your journey, why would you recommend them
2: simply it's just it 's a necessary learning tool because you you get to know the physiology of the disease because I remember there was someone there from the NIH and she was speaking way over my head, but my best friend was sitting next to me, and she was telling me, "Oh yeah, this is I know this so um, then there was an opportunity to meet other people and find out different stories and different uh, just where everyone was in their diagnosis. So we were all coming from different backgrounds, but we had this one thing in common that we were ill and we needed to know everything that we could about it. So I I highly recommend everybody, because if you if you have the knowledge of what's going on, then we, if you hear something bad, then you already are aware of it. You know how to handle it. Or you at least, you're a little bit more prepared for what may be around the corner. At least that's how I was.
1: Well, thank you. That's a very uh, excellent uh recommendation. Um, and all. I'm just going to take a moment to mention that our current series of patient and family conferences is just getting started. They run from late March into late in the fall of every year. And you can find more information on AAMDS-IF patient and family conferences at, here we go, www.aamds.org forward slash education forward slash conferences. So, Patrice, we've heard a whole lot about your story today from the remarkable appearance of Robin Roberts in the beginning and towards the end. And I'd like to ask you uh, if you could bring it down or boil it down to one thought or a bit of advice that you would like to share with other bone marrow failure disease patients, aplastic anemia patients, who are now where you were at that time. What would you tell them?
2: Um, it's very interesting. I'm um, writing a new book, this is my second book, but I'm talking about, uh, the the title of it is Five Smooth Stones for Cancer Survivors. And one of the things that I'm putting in there is how you look at this. We've all talked about the perspective of this glass half full or is it half empty? Well, I say that I don't know about the glass because I'm focusing on my cup and it's running over. <laughs> And for me it's about your approach, how you look at this. Nobody wants to talk about the the inevitable that there is a percentage you know, there's a possibility that you could die from this. Yes, let's go ahead and accept that upfront. And now that we accept it, we go on. But there's also a possibility that you survive. So that's what I always focused on was my survival. I didn't let stinking thinking is what I call it, (laughs) me. It's all about your approach, how you look at this. Because even right now, if I pass away today, this thing did not define me. I defined it. So um, I think if patients or someone who has been recently diagnosed just gets past what the statistics have said in the past because the statistics are getting better now. They're getting much better, and the survival rates are on the increase, and March 24th will be two years for me, and I've never felt better, and I know this is the best i felt probably in 10 years, so approach it with the mindset that I'm going to be better than this either way. Don't be afraid for long. It's okay to be afraid just a little bit up front, but at the same time, don't park your car and live there. You have to get past that and then just walk through it. One step at a time, one diagnosis, one day at a time, and you'll get through it.
1: Well, Patrice, that's excellent advice and most excerptable and quotable, I might add. Um, <laughs> you know, we've heard so much about your story today. Um, and I just want to thank you for sharing all this uh, information, the the dates, the specifics, the, the treatment regimen, your own um Feelings and attitudes about it and how, of course, AAMDSIF did help you uh, get through things. So again, thanks for sharing your journey and back to you, Tricia.
0: Thanks, Bob. And thank you so much, Patrice. You've given us not just the story of your patient journey, but also many words of wisdom that um, all of our listeners can hang on to. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. I'm not Robin Roberts. So I'm not at her platform yet, but you can ask anybody. I'll talk to anybody in the grocery store, wherever, about this because knowledge is power. That's just not a cliche. The more you know about it, the less fearful it is. That's that's really great. And
0: thank you, listeners, for being here. As a reminder, the AAMDSIF Helpline is here for you at 800 747 to 820, option 2, or email help at aamds.org, where you can be connected with Peer Support Network and other support groups. To connect with your peers online, you can go join the confidential chat at org. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.